You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host today and I'm joined by Renee Coronado. Hey Renee, what's going on in your audio world these days? It's it's busy in my world, but we're, we're, we're hanging in. Excellent. We're also joined by Mark Kilborn. Listeners will know Mark is a very active member of the online sound community in both post and game audio forums, groups, slacks, twitters, everything. He's real busy on that. He's also been the audio director on the Call of Duty franchise, as well as working on other landmark series like Forza Motorsport, Tony Hawk, Modern Warfare, and many others. Welcome to the show, Mark. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. Okay, so today we're going to discuss a massive handheld recorder shootout done by one of our guests, Tim Nielsen. You may remember Tim on previous Tonebender episodes, 152, where we talked about crowdsourced libraries, and 115, where we talked about his work on the Oscar-nominated documentary, The Cave. Tim is based in the Bay Area and is a supervising sound editor at Skywalker Ranch. Welcome back to the show, Tim. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So finally joining us today is Christina Morse. She joins us from Sacramento. She works in both production sound and post-production sound. She's the host of a really awesome podcast that I think if you're a regular listener of Tonebenders, you should definitely go check out. It's called the Closing Credits Podcast. Welcome to the show, Christina. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. I'm so excited. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I'm very excited to be here. Yay. Oh, that's nice to hear. Thank you very much. So let's start the talk with the handheld recorder shootout, Tim. Listeners, if you go to the episode page on ToneBendersPodcast.com, you can find a link there that you can download the session of all the stuff Tim recorded. Tim, do you want to break down what they'll find if they go to that link and pull the stuff down? Yeah, it's it's basically a Pro Tools session, although the audio files are organized so that somebody in, say, Reaper or any other doc could also pull in the files. And it's 11 different handheld recorders and about maybe I think it's 15 or 20 different recordings with each of the basically recorders. So a little bit of sound effects, mostly ambiences, some really quiet stuff, some some public places, cities, and things like that. And um, it was really just an attempt to realize that I had all these recorders myself, most of them. I, I ended up borrowing a few to, to fill it out. But And I realized I want to get rid of some of them because I don't need to own this many recorders. And this was the kind of impetus for this project. And I thought, well, let me put them all head to head and see which ones I really like and which ones I think sound the best. And I should keep those regardless of the price. And I thought other people might be interested in this. I mean, people in the audio community have done this for years, doing little shootouts here and there. And David Farmer and I have done a few over the years. And sometimes we do them just for ourselves. And sometimes we've shared them and things. But I decided to try to expand it a little bit and make something that would be hopefully a little bit useful for people who are, especially people who are just starting out and kind of considering that maybe their first recorder to buy something like that. Because these are all... You know, they range in price, but they're all relatively inexpensive, except for maybe a couple of the Sony models, which are a little bit high. But otherwise, you know, we're talking about $100 to $300 recorders for most of these. Did you have a winner? Um, I <laughs> don't have a single winner myself. I mean, I, um, you know, and, 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 the, and the funny thing is, of course, you the risk is that the recorders that I thought that I already was going to like, you know, I know what they all are. And the other thing I should point out is that if you download this, the recorders are all sort of anonymous. When you start to listen to them, I, there is a guide which will tell you which they are. But the goal of this is clearly as a listening test. This isn't a scientific test, not a technical test. I'm not comparing noise floors against, you know, Max SPL and specs and these kind of things. It's really just to listen to them. They're all in perfect sync. So you can kind of just, you know, solo between them and just listen to the different recorders. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I have I have a couple that I prefer, and 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 but for me, they were the ones that I sort of expected to prefer. So I can't say for sure that I was really a good judge of my own test in a way because you know I, I ended up acquiring some other recorders just for this test, and I didn't love them as much. But some of these other recorders I've used for six years, so I know them really intimately. So you know that's the challenge. Is some of the people I I know some of the people who've listened to this and and given me their opinion. They've usually chosen the recorder that they own, which is not surprising, right? I mean, this is the recorder that they've come to learn to use and, and are, they're used to that sound. But I was surprised, I think mostly for me, how well the really inexpensive recorders do hold up against the more expensive recorders. I mean, I think that for me, the most interesting thing is that to me, any of these recorders are, are usable. Some of them are less usable than others in certain situations. Some of them are a little noisier. Some of them have a different image, which in some types of files, I, I did record the ocean, which I always find one of the hardest things to record. Waves are just that hard. There's so much phasiness going on. And some of the recorders just to me don't sound very pleasant at all. Some of them did okay. None of them were brilliant. I think it's almost impossible to record the ocean really well. But um, yeah, I think to me it was just interesting that you know even the cheapest recorder, which would be the Zoom um, H1N, um, I love that little recorder. I mean, it sounds great to me, you know, considering what 30 years ago you could have bought for $100, you couldn't buy anything. And the fact that you can buy a recorder that can record completely professional sound effects that I could drop into any $200 million movie without even batting an eyelash is quite fascinating to me. I fell into the category of the person who picked this recorder they already owned. So I went through and listened to them all and I'm soloing up each one and really fell in love with, uh, I think it was nine, but I can't remember now. And then looked up the the answer key and was like, oh, that's the one I've already owned and had for seven years. So uh, so there, I, I don't know if that's confirmation bias or just, you know, you're just used to that sound. But uh, the, the, the main thing I took from it was what you just mentioned, that all of them are usable. Like there, there wasn't anything that I heard that I was just like, that's just complete garbage or anything like that. Yeah. And uh the the episode, the day that we're recording this, I'm not sure when this will be released, but the, the previous episode of Tonebenders that we released was a talk about Free Guy, and they talked about how they used a lot of iPhone recordings, that mm. they, just because of COVID, they ended up having to do a lot of uh, ADR that way, and that it all worked, you know? Yeah. And just the fact that, like you said, a $100 recorder, the phone that's in your pocket all the time, that we're living in a world where those recordings, you know, they're, they're not obviously as great as... Uh, an amazing DMS rig or something like that, but in a pinch, you can make them work. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of trash talking of certain brands, especially Zoom gets a really bad rap. Some of their early recorders were not all that great. Um, they've really stepped up their game. Their customer service is fantastic. Um, and I'm surprised at how well their recorders hold up. And to me, the recorder I just purchased before I decided to do this was a D100, a Sony, which are now discontinued. They're getting quite difficult to find. And some part of me thought, I need to own a D100. Mm -hmm. I have a Sony M10, I have a Sony A10, um, I need a D100. So I tracked one down in the UK from Amazon UK, got it shipped here, it was expensive. And um, I did some recordings and I thought, yeah, it's fine. But I don't, it's not like blowing me away. And I thought, how does this really compare to my H1N, say, or the Sony A10, this really simple one? Um, and again, confirmation bias certainly probably plays a part in this, but like, to me, in a lot of the recordings, the little Sony A10, which is this tiny little pocketable recorder, to me sounds better than the D100. Wow. Um, and again, that might be completely biased, I can't say, but um, I'm just, again, shocked at you know th th this wide range of prices that from, you know that was about a $900 recorder to a $100 recorder, and all of them are usable. And you know 
and in, in different recordings, some sound better than others too. It's not like one always outperformed the other ones. It was like depending on the thing, but all of them with some mastering, some proper mastering, which people should be doing anyway, you know, all would have made great sound files and any of them were usable to me. What kind of source material were you testing? I mean, I tested mostly ambiences because mostly what I'm using handheld recorders for is ambience work when I'm out gathering things. But we did, I went down to Dave Farmer's house and we recorded quite a bit of chimes, um, different types of chimes to try and test high frequency things. And we did, I recorded my garage door with all of them running. I mean, there are, there's a a small spattering of effects, but not a ton of effects work because this is not primarily what I'm using them for. And, you know, selfishly, this is kind of why I was doing the test was for me to to decide, (laughs) you know, mostly I'm carrying this thing with me when I'm traveling and recording ambiences of cities and different things. I did try to record some very quiet things, just like room tones in the garage and, um, you know, because of COVID as well, a lot of stuff around my house, my backyard, my my city street at night, some crickets and things like some early morning birds at five in the morning, you know, various things like that. Um, some city here, I live in this small town of 60,000 people north of the bay a bit and just, you know, taking it around the town a bit here, this big ridiculous rig on this huge tripod and people staring at me like, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> yeah, we'll include a picture of the rig on the website as well where you can get the download. Yeah, I would say it's mostly ambiences, but there are some effects in there, some some uh, board creaks and some things like that, um, but mostly ambiences. So before we get into kind of a wider discussion about gear, I, just before we move on from that, the one thing you're not going to be able to tell from a listening test are things like ergonomics. Were there any that stood out for you ergonomically as either like exceptionally good or exceptionally poor? Usability. Yeah. Yeah. And I should have, you know, my goal was to do to write up some more notes and different things. Absolutely. Some of them were kind of finicky and annoying to me and um, one thing that annoys me is that almost all of the recorders actually require you to press two buttons to get start recording. You know, very few of them actually go into record with one button press. And the Sony's, in fact, require you to hit record and then pause to unpause the re- paused recording. And so there were several false starts where I recorded for 10 minutes and realized one of the recorders had never started because I didn't see the, the light. It was bright outside or whatever. That's the main thing that sort of frustrates me. Again, I, I had mounted all of these in a sort of a, an array, so I wasn't hand-holding most of these. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, they're all small enough to be thrown in a bag. Maybe three or four of them are actually pocketable, I would say, the H1N, the Sony A10, and the little Olympus that I borrowed from David Farmer. Um, but, no, I mean, I, I think that all of them could be usable. And, again, you know, had I, had I had more time, you know, a handheld test to see which ones transmitted the most handling noise. But the truth is all of them transmit handling noise, you know, you're trying to handheld recorder, your fingers are two inches from the microphones and you just can't expect to be able to handheld. I turned off the the bass roll off on all of these. I turned off all the limiters. So, you know, I wanted to hear how much wind rumble was coming through. Um, but I had varying windscreens on them as well. So that's probably not a completely fair test. Some of them had just thinner, you know, they all had fuzzy windscreens, but some weren't as good as the other ones and stuff. Um, so this is really just a listening test and not a super scientific or technical comparison. I mean, that's the one thing. If people are going to download this, just know that it's just to get a sense of what they sound like out in the real world. And, um, and you know, heck, there's a bunch of sounds in there. Feel free to take all the sounds as well. I didn't, you know, go ahead. Mm-hmm. If, you know, a bunch of ambiences around my town and birds and crickets and stuff. So Cool. For someone like myself, I've already bought a handheld recorder. So uh, it was more of a out of interest for me to go through and kind of hear the stuff. But if I'm someone that doesn't have a handheld recorder, if I'm someone just graduating uh, school or something like that, this test would be a really interesting thing to really dive into 
and figure out uh, what you like best before you kind of, you know, put your credit card down to order something or uh, buy it. So thank you very much for doing that, yeah. Tim. We'll put pictures and we'll put the link to pull it down. It's about 40 gigs, so you need a little little bit of time to pull it down. But it's a really interesting test to uh, wade through. I found the chimes really fascinating, the way the different ones held up to the chimes. Um, so let, let's kind of transition now to uh, a broader conversation about gear acquisition and how sound people, uh, there tends to be amongst some sound people kind of a gear obsession, a need to have the latest, the greatest, the newest of everything. And that goes from uh, field recorders and microphones to plugins to everything that we use to create stuff for our jobs. And uh, to bring in Mark and Christina back into the conversation, Mark, you recently did uh, a plugin fast for at the beginning of 2020, right? Do you want to just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I, uh, it actually was kind of a joke initially, <laughs> then people latched <laughs> onto it. I jokingly tweeted out something about how I'm not going to buy a plugin for the entirety of 2020. Um, and then so many people responded to it and I suddenly felt accountable. And so I actually tried to do it and it, it worked. I mean, I made it part way through the year. I think I made it like six, seven months. I don't remember exactly. Cause it's been a weird couple of years. Um, but it was a really good exercise because it made me, I think it made me realize that I was buying a lot of plugins and tools because I thought they were neat. And maybe I was looking for inspiration in tools at times and maybe a little bit of fear of missing out and a little bit of wanting to talk to people about whatever was new. So what I started doing instead of going to grab a new plugin was I would start pulling out old plugins that I haven't really used that much. And I have way too many plugins. Um, but yeah, I, like I said, I made it six or seven months, uh, but the result has been, it's, it's had an impact on me. I, I just went and looked through before we started recording tonight. I looked through my list. Um, if I'm accurate here, I think I've only bought six plugins this entire year so far. So I'm not, I'm not buying nothing, but I'm buying a lot less than I normally would. What's your typical buying clip? Like how much of a deviation is that? One or two a month was typical. So, you know, 20 to 24. Um, I, I've also got a bad habit with libraries because I just like having lots of source material. But yeah, now it's a lot less and it's good. I'm, I feel like I'm getting more out of what I own and spending less money, which is always a good thing, right? For sure. What was the hardest part about it? Uh, realizing that I had tweeted that out and put myself on the hook and had to actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, you know, the other hardest part of it that's kind of funny is I've got a, I've got a friend named Alex who, uh, is a sound designer mixer used to work at blizzard and he just torments me endlessly because he wants to break me of this habit he's like buy this plugin check it out so like once a week he's sending me some trailer video or link or something he's like mark you need to buy this he's he's the funny devil on my shoulder i know alex he torments me too that's i think just his nature <laughs> yeah it, it kind of is it's just his personality so i'm i'm glad i'm not alone he does this to you too excellent <laughs> And Christina, you had a Twitter thread recently kind of about the headspace of people um, as they're breaking in and what, how they should approach gear acquisition. You want to fill us in on, on where you were at with that? Um, well, I still consider myself pretty new because I was like a set audio mixer before moving over to sound design like full time. But I've just noticed that if I talk to sound students or just film students or People who reach out to me, they're always like, oh, cool, I saw your timeline Tuesday. How many plugins do you have and which one should I buy? And I've even had people reach out to me to go, hey, I saw you posted something and I bought the same stuff. 
So it's like that's that doesn't make you as good as somebody else. And I thought I'm really tired of hearing about, I guess, like what plugins do you have? Because it reminds me of when I was a first AC back when I was first starting in the industry. And everybody always asks, what camera do you have? Is it a red? That's all we want to hear. And it doesn't really matter like what gear or what plugin you have. You can make anything work. And for my own personal thing, I posted the post about like not caring too much about how many plugins and gear you have because I like starting off and trying out having nothing and see where I can go from there because like working with the minimal amount of stuff that you have, you could probably do a lot and you don't always need every single plugin just for every little thing. And that's where I, I think I tweeted that in the morning someday. Well, you're right because now Pro Tools and Reaper, all these DAWs come with so many stock plugins that you can get by with those for a long time before you need to start purchasing stuff. Tim, what, what's your uh, take? I think you've changed recently, your uh, kind of relationship to gear and such. Yeah, I mean, as my career is now in the decline, winding down these years, I, um, <laughs> I, I'm trying to get rid of things, and not just in the, my technological life, but otherwise, you know, I'm decluttering and... Um, uh, it, like Christina said, you know, I've had so many students ask me, you know, what what reverb should I buy? And I'm like, you know, just pick one. It doesn't matter which one. Pick one and then learn to use it properly instead of buying a second one and a third one and a fourth one before you've learned to even use the first one. You know, I'm still a big believer that you need four plugins, basically. You need an EQ, you need a compressor, you need a reverb, and you need a pitching plugin. And that's basically it. Th- those are the, Pick one of the 5,000 myriad reverbs available. Um, if you need a surround reverb, pick a surround reverb. If you, you know, if you love a convolution, go with Altiverb. If you don't, look at, you know, there's lots of options, right? So I rarely will give any specific recommendations anymore, um, but just talk about maybe classes of, you know, plugins. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a microphone addict. So over the years I've accumulated, I don't know, I've probably got 70 microphones now in my collection. Um, and, you know, some of them very expensive, some of them very inexpensive. And the vast majority of them just don't get used, really, to be honest. You know, I I, I use three or four microphones 95% of the time, probably. And there's maybe five more that I want to keep because they have some real esoteric use and I, I want them available when I really want to get into that. But, you know, I've got, I think at this point, four MS rigs and, you know, six shotguns or something ridiculous. <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, and some of them haven't been used in seven or eight years, to be honest. And um, uh, with handheld recorders, I have, you know, I had owned 11 of them, you know, and I thought I need two of them maybe, you know, I'd like to have a really pocketable one and I'd like to have maybe a slightly bigger one. And yeah, I don't know for me what it was. It wasn't really bragging rights. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by the technology and uh, it is a little bit of fear of missing out. I always think that there's something better available and I don't want to, you know. And so for a large part of my career, I kept thinking that, you know, the quality of my gear was going to dictate the quality of my sound design. And it's, of course, completely not true, you know. Um, it's just not true. And so I think anybody starting out in this industry, I would say, you know, don't fall into that trap of letting your friends sort of show off their latest shiny convolution reverb. And then, as Mark would tell you, you know, it probably gets used for a week and then you forget you even own it. And five years later, you're like looking through your iLock assets and going, God, I forgot I bought that stupid $600 plugin, which has never been used since. <laughs> I have occasionally tried to buy a plugin I already owned. And yes. I found out when I got it into my <laughs> checkout basket. I've done that too. So yeah, that's why I thought this would be an interesting, you know, talk because I really feel like, you know, uh, the amount of money that I've wasted over the years on MIDI control that have then just been basically given away because I hated them or whatever, you know, 
uh, it's not just plugins and it's not just microphones, but all the peripheral gear that we use, yeah. you know, MIDI keyboard controllers. I probably bought 50 of them over the course of my lifetime. I need one, you know, I should have just picked one and I would have been fine. And how much money has been wasted um, that would have been, you know, so much better used for other things. I think it's it's worth asking the question, like, what is the utility of, of any gear acquisition in the first place, right? What are you actually trying to, to do? Like what, what force in the world is causing this need, right? And in a lot of cases, I've done the same thing. And where I've wasted most of my money, Tim, is um, with middling stuff, right? And through hard lessons, I, I've developed a, a philosophy of when I want to try something new, I'll, I'll go bottom of the barrel and just get in the game. So, for example, like if I don't own any figure eight microphones and I want to and I want to get into an MS rig, I'm going to find the cheapest one that I can and I'll get into it and I'll just kind of get used to what that style of recording is. And once I've decided that I that I have a specific use and a specific need for that, then I will save up my pennies for as long as it needs to go and I'll go top of the line. Mm. And so where I've wasted most of my money is when I've, I've tried to cheat that. Right. When I've tried to find like super high value. Right. But by going kind of like off brand or like middling, whatever. Right. Like, you know, and I'm a, kind of a contrarian by nature anyway. So, you know, like when everyone's out there getting the Sankin, you know, um, super high frequency mic, I'm over there getting the Sony C100 because I just I want something different than what everyone else has. Right. And so so I'll make mistakes that way, too. But in, in a broader sense, the the purchases that I've been most happy with that I, you know, I can look back on and be like, this is this one I did right is when I branched out into something I didn't understand and, and bought something at the bottom of the barrel to figure it out. And then when, like, this, this specific microphone I'm talking into right now, it's a Microtech Gefell M930, and I had my eye on it for years. <laughs> I mean, years. And I sat there and I was, I was you know, I, I have a certain amount of my income that I, that I just chop off and set aside in its own bank account every single month, just specifically for, so I have cash available for me to get whatever I need to get. And I had my eye on this mic for years and years and years and years and years. And then finally, one of them, a pair of them showed up on eBay at like 50% off of what they're worth. And this was like a special pair that somebody else had like recorded the piano for this amazing album on. Dude sent me the album he recorded the piano with too. Um, but because I knew that that was what I wanted and I had the cash available to me, I was able to buy this microphone and its, and its brother there. And it is, I'm done. I don't need any more large diaphragm condensers. Like this, this is, this is my favorite mic in the world. It sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but have you heard about this other mic I could tell you about that you need even more? <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I've got the one that I want, right? And it's like, and, it's, and, I'm, and I'm using and abusing these things, right? I'm taking them and I'm putting them in ORTF and I'm recording ambiences. And I'm just doing, doing stuff you don't usually do with large diaphragm condensers because I absolutely love the tone and the texture of this specific mic. And so... The places where I've wasted money is when I've been trying to cut corners and the places where I've been happy with what I've got and where I actually feel like I'm at the end of the road is when I, I go find the thing that I know that I'm going to love and cherish and that I would pass down to my children and I go get that. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Shep's microphones. I love the sound of them. They're ridiculously expensive and I own lots and lots of them. And 20 years ago, there weren't a lot of microphones that would probably be good replacements for some of these. But nowadays, there are some really fascinating companies making really affordable and really high quality microphones. Um, so that's one thing that's changed too. You know, I've been doing this now 22 years since I first arrived at the ranch, I think, something like that. And um, it was a very different game back then. If you wanted to get into portable recording and you were buying a DAT machine, there were only two or three available, right? There weren't yeah. 500. Now there are so many handled recorders and so many different things. But Christina, I'm curious because you because I haven't done any production, but you you sort of started out in that 
I would imagine that gear acquisition for that is a little bit different because, I mean, there are some expectations, I think, for production sound recordists, certainly, um, you know, when you're charging money that people, you know, want to see certain gear or you have, you know, maybe you're thinking more about reliability. I mean, there's some different considerations when thinking about gear for that. And, you know, I know some people probably starting out would have to rent gear because some of that stuff gets, you know, wireless systems get really expensive and things. And I don't deal with any of that. I don't have a need for that. But I'd be curious your take on the difference between sort of that gear in production versus post-production world. Like seems like more necessity in production and sort of bragging rights in post-production. I guess with sets um, for myself, I think it's just like necessity, whatever worked. Because like the first films I worked on, I didn't have any lobs. At, it was just boom everything and I was like wow I did a pretty good job better than if I did with a lav because I don't know how to use it because every time I try to tape it down on someone I'm like I don't know how to do that but then as I got further in and onto like bigger like commercials or anything people would be like oh you have a Sennheiser G3 that's all you have where's Electrosonics where's your uh like they they the higher the production or certain types of productions especially LA they will constantly like it. They want certain gear, but in post, I don't seem to see it as much like with like people like, oh, what gear do you have? That's what we want. But I think, yeah, for set, you accumulate way more gear. You just have like a huge cart. You have all this stuff. And also why I left because I was like, I'm going to use that money and put it into plugins. That sounds like a better idea. <laughs> like That's why I changed partially because um, I didn't want to spend all that money on all that stuff. How do you approach your gear acquisition, Christina? Are you systematic about it at all, or like, how? Do, what's your what's your framework for post? In the beginning, um, since I went to school, kind of like a generic film degree, there wasn't really much about sound, so I just kind of used whatever we had, which was broken microphones. And my dad, actually, he wanted to be a sound designer, and he didn't tell me until I said, "Hey, I kind of want to be like Gary Reistrom," and he's like, "Oh crap, that's so cool." Let me tell you some stuff. <laughs> and he like he bought me my first NTG2 or something. And he kind of kept me on those as like test these out, see how those work. But in the beginning, it was mainly just him telling me like, hey, maybe the MKH416 would be good because that's a powerhouse from back in my day. And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And now I just learned a lot more from like Twitter. And if like I'll listen to people's tests or something or I'll have somebody else test it. And I don't typically buy a lot of stuff because I don't really need it. I will rent it mainly um, if needed. But for gear, like since there's what the 32-bit float and all of that, that's new. That's cool. Especially when I have to deal with a lot of people screaming. That's always a really good thing. So I look at that and go, okay, that's something that I do need. I'll probably buy that and try that out. And that's usually how I go about it. I don't really buy too much. I just kind of see if I need it. And that includes plugins. If I go, oh man, I am having trouble with this. And someone will say, hey, Cedar might be good. I'm like, okay, because it's a problem that I'm constantly having. So that's what requires me to buy something. It's interesting. I, I'm very impulsive. So I buy a lot of things without thinking about it. And years ago, I bought a, a Soundfield Ambisonics microphone, which is probably the most expensive microphone I own. And one of my colleagues at the ranch, who has to think about things for a long, long time and has to do all the math and compare everything because he's convinced there's something else that could be better, uh, you know, and 
and to, I bought my microphone probably six years ago, and this person is, you know, had still never bought one, even though he wants one or he wanted one, and just because he just couldn't bring himself to commit that much money, which I totally get. And so, but it's funny the sort of different ends. I mean, I do some research and I do different things, but I just go, oh, that's cool, put it in the cart, buy it, you know. Um, and this is why I own a MixPre 3.2 and a MixPre 6.2 and a MixPre 10.2. <laughs> I have no need for these three recorders. I mean, I, you know, I should pick the middle one or something. But, I, you know, I said there's a few things I want to do with the higher channel count, so I better buy that MixPre 10.2. And it's more or less never been used still. Um, and so I'm very impulsive in all the bad ways of, you know, just kind of uh, – that's stopped now. I, I swear I'm over it. I, I, go to my, <laughs> I go to my meetings and I stand up in front of the group and I tell them that um, I'm an addict and um, – <laughs> But yeah, I mean, plugins are the worst because it's, um, and nowadays, of course, you can get demos of most plugins, right? I mean, at least, you know, that wasn't always the case. You know, a lot of these things were bought on blind faith before. You didn't really have the choice to try it out and test it out. But, you know, if you live in a major city as well, you can go rent a lot of these microphones that you might be considering Definitely. that have you have a post sound or production sound house. I mean, I think if you're in New York and LA or Toronto, that might be true. But here in Dallas, that is not the case. Is that true? There's no, I guess it's true. And probably dwindling the more. The rental house is us. Yeah. <laughs> We're the rental house. <laughs> well, there you house. go. Rodan, Rodan will rent you his Mitchell, Mitchell <laughs> Guffin 6, whatever you said that thing was, right? <laughs> no. No, he won't. Okay. <laughs> That's an interesting question, though, an angle that maybe we can discuss the difference between uh, someone who's working freelance and their point of view of gear acquisition versus someone who's working for a studio. Because uh, I, I and for the first six or seven years of my career, I worked at a studio and I basically didn't buy any gear. I went to the studio and used their gear. And then I went freelance and I basically bought all the gear I was used to working at that studio with. And then after a few years, when that stuff starts going out of date, you have to start updating and figuring out. And, and then that's when that gear obsession really kicked in for me. Uh, I like Christina earlier mentioned about how people contact her and ask her what they're using. And then someone, you find out that they bought exactly what you said. I essentially did that in 2009 with Tim Preble. He did a blog post about a big recording session that he did. And, uh, I went out and bought the main microphone he used for it. And, uh, I still have it to this day, but it's not one I use very much anymore. So it's, uh, one I would probably not have done in the past, but, uh, Renee, how do you manage that relationship, uh, between, you know, what the studio owns and what you own? I mean, initially I was very similar. So I, I'm on staff at Dallas Audio Post and I have been for the last 20 something years. And so I've always had all the equipment that I've ever needed to do my job professionally there at work. And, and, you know, probably for the first, I don't know, five or eight years, I really didn't buy a whole lot. But then after that, I started really wanting to go out and do my own things. And even like this podcast, I mean, like this, if I had to bring a mic home from the office to record the podcast, that would end up being problematic. And if I want to, on the spur of the moment, just grab a, a rig and go record things, like if I get a Google alert that there's a building implosion happening on Saturday, then I need to have a rig that I can put together at my house the night before that I'm not going to have to roll to the studio and deal with. And so that ended up kind of being the impetus for a lot of that is a lot of my own personal, I don't know, just need and desire to make certain recordings the way that I wanted to make them ended up driving a certain amount of gear acquisition. And then right before COVID hit, we were actually... Um, pushing a lot to build up our own studio rigs at the house. So, you know, just editing and mixing and that type of stuff at the house, which I didn't have at all before because I have a big, beautiful studio to go work in. But I ended up needing to start being able to take some work home and continue to, to push work forward, you know, nights, evenings, weekends, whatever. And then, and fortunately, I had really kicked that up and I got it all in place, like, I don't know, right at the beginning of, two th of, of, of 2020. So it was like all up and flying and then COVID hit. 
And so I kind of didn't have to miss a beat. I could actually just work from home for a lot of stuff. And it ended up being just hyper useful for that to be the case. But I, I'm, I'm at the place now. I, I think we had this conversation with, with Kai Peek at some point, maybe not in the podcast, but maybe in, in the Slack channel or something like that, where it was like, if you had your dream rig, if you had everything you, you know, what's your dream rig look like? Like, what does your final, final gear acquisition list look like? And a lot of us were able to look around and be like, you know what? I'm there or I'm like 85% there. And that's, that's an important realization to, to be able to make sometimes um, is when you're there. Like as far as microphones are concerned, I need one more Crown PZM and that's it. And I think I'm done. And that's amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have large diaphragm condensers. I have small diaphragm condensers. I have shotguns. I have I have most of the PCMs that I like. I have contact mics. But you're 20 years into your career. I'm 20 years in, right? Yeah. And, you know, but, you know, and I'm probably 10, 15 years into just buying my own gear. Um, but, you know, careers last longer than 20 years. Exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, my first microphones were actually from one of my teachers at USC. And he was a production sound recordist. And um, he knew that I was interested in some microphones. So he basically one day brought in a box full of Sheps, like just a box full of wow. capsules and bodies. And, As you do. And, you um, <laughs> and uh, we settled on a price of $2,000 for the entire box of gear, which is probably worth about $12,000. And then when I went to pay him, he said, I'll just make it 1000 and call it that. And, uh, and that was my first gear. And I've owned, I owned that rig for, was a, I was able to build an MS Sheps rigs out, out of that way back when. Um, that's been passed on to another sound designer, Nia Hansen, at, at Skywalker. She bought it for me now probably a decade ago after I owned it for 20 years or so. And um, it's still going strong. And, you know, a lot of it's the thing with microphones is the tech doesn't change that much. I mean, the chef's microphone you'd buy today is more or less the chef's microphone you could have bought 40 years ago with some some mild changes and things. But, you know, so investing in gear that will last is definitely something to consider. But, Renee, like you are saying, you know, I've got certain types of categories, right? That's the thing. We think about the utility of all these things. Like, what microphones do I really need? Like, I own three or four hydrophones. I almost never use hydrophones because I don't like them. I don't think they sound good. Same. And um, <laughs> I own a very expensive DPA hydrophone that cost me thousands of dollars. Uh, and it's, you know, and then I bought some other ones, not thinking they were better, but thinking I maybe wanted to try something with multiple hydrophones. Um, I'd be okay not owning a hydrophone, to be perfectly honest with you now, you know, I mean, it's, or at least, you know, one of the much cheaper ones that I own. But it's important to think, like, what kind of things am I going to record? What What is the utility that I need, you know? And um, I bought some really esoteric microphones just because I thought they might be cool and then realized it's just nothing I'm going to, not a kind of recording that I do. And I don't need that. One other note is, is as people are exploring, like, what they do need or what they even like, a great resource is a lot of the um, crowdsource field recordings because so many so many microphones get put into use, everything from, you know, H1s all the way up to Shep's rigs and whatever else. And it's really, I've found it to be a really good resource for, you know, the, the, the crowdsource recordings that go on in the field recording slacks and in lots of other places. Um, it's just a thing now that happens. But for people that participate in those, I mean, you come back, you get all these sounds back and you can just listen to the, all these mic comparisons of very similar source material. And the metadata of what the mic is, is there. Yeah. Yeah. But can I, I, I would put one caveat out there, which is 
a really good recordist with a really cheap recorder could probably outperform a really bad recordist with a $10,000 microphone. I've heard so many people with really high microphones produce just terrible recordings and terribly mastered. And so I agree with you in theory. I'm just saying, you know, keep that in mind that, you know, yeah. you might, I, I, I never look at the recorder when I'm listening to sounds. Never. I'm not interested in the least. I don't keep track of that in my own library at all. I only care what it sounds like. I don't want to dupe myself into thinking that a recorder might not be worthy because I've heard somebody else badmouth it or something else. Like, right. I don't care if it was recorded on, on a cassette tape if it's a great sound. And I have sounds in my library that were recorded on a cassette tape that still sound better than anything I've heard anybody else record with anything else for that sound, you know? And if it's the right sound, it's the right sound. So, but I do agree, you know, that that's the thing. These crowdsources have such a wide range of of people, some people who've been doing this for 30 years and some people who are just starting out. When we did this My Home Crowdsource, the greatest email I got was from a guy who was like 76 years old, wrote me and said, I've never recorded anything in my life, but this project has inspired me to go buy a recorder and try to record. And, um, you know, how awesome is that? This guy went out and bought a Zoom H4N or something. I don't remember what it was now and contributed to the crowdsource and made some great recordings. I think, though, that, I mean, in a lot of those crowdsources, there are a lot of like good recordists and good recordings. And I guess what I'm talking about is there are times when you'll get recording, you'll you'll be going through the crowdsource and going through recordings and being like, man, that sounds really good. And you'll look up the mic and be like, wow, that's the Lewitt. Right. <laughs> that's the Lewitt, the $130 Lewitt, you know, large diaphragm condensers. Those sound awesome. If I didn't have large diaphragm condensers, I would roll with those Lewitts in a heartbeat. And I've never held one in my hand, mm. but like, I know what those can do at this point. That's true. Stuff like that ends up being useful. I bought a pair of Swedish microphones called Line Line Audio. Yeah, I've got those. Which are some Love very those. expensive. Yeah, I mean, they're fan. And because I, I heard some other people's recordings, you're right. I mean, I I don't mean to disagree with you. I'm just saying, you know, I've heard some really great recordings too. And then I look at the microphone and it's like, you know, Chef's MS. And I'm like, wow, that just, you know, and some of it comes down to mastering and some of it comes down to just bad environment and bad luck and different things like that too. So I would just say, you know, take it all with a grain of salt too to some degree. Um, but it is true, you know, when you hear a great recording and realize it was recorded on a really expensive recorder, that's empowering to, to you know, get over. I've had so many people, you know, just bash really inexpensive recorders and I would never buy that. I'm like, well, that's your loss then, you know, not mine um, because uh, I've gotten some, some of my favorite recordings off of a $100 recorder. One other thing I'll say about microphones too, and, and it's something that I've learned through experience is that I really, I can't form an opinion on any specific microphone until I've been banging that thing for a, a number of months. I mean, it's really, really hard. It's, shootouts are one thing, but it, to really get a sense of what a mic's gonna do in any given situation, you have to run it just a lot. Like I had a really problematic relationship with the 416 for a long time <laughs> until, I, until I could wrap my head around what that mic was doing. Mm. You know what I mean? And once I kind of really, really just, I had to just sit and just record and record and record with that thing until, and, and then I was like, okay, I know what I'm doing with the 416 now because I was just screwing up fundamentally for months. You know what I mean? Just trying to make it be something that it wasn't. Yeah. You know, and that, and I found that to be true of a lot of mics. I owned a microphone that now Mark Kilborn actually owns, but and this was a microphone that I had heard some recordings from, um, and I thought they sounded great. And I think it was a microphone that Ren Kleiss owned, and I, who doesn't want to be like Ren? And so I bought this microphone and <laughs> um, and I used it for a while. But I didn't use it enough, probably, and I didn't love the recordings that I got from it. And and then it ended up uh, getting sold to Mark. This was probably more than ten years ago now. Um, but like, I'd be curious. Like, you know, you were in the market for that, and they were very hard to find. I should point out, it was a microphone Crown SASS, which had been long, long discontinued. So it was really hard to find a good one. I had mine refurbished by Crown. It was in really good shape. So you know, 
have you used it constantly, Mark? I mean, has it gone in the closet? And I have not used it constantly. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I I still have it in the closet. I I bought it because earlier in my career, I kind of made this decision that I wanted to go freelance at some point. Um, and I I guess to speak to a previous point about you know whether you own your gear or not, I've had a front row seat to way too many layoffs in the game industry, so that makes me really really antsy about having my own equipment. Um, and I usually encourage other game sound people to do the same thing. Um, but I kind of put together a dream list a long time ago of if I'm going to keep working on AAA first-person shooter games, what microphones do I want to have in my arsenal? Because I was looking at this based on microphones I was hearing in libraries that I liked. Um, and this was before the crowdsources were really a big deal. So I was cribbing off the notes of people like... Um, you know, the recordist and Tim Preble and reading articles that you had written. In fact, I bought my Shep's MS rig because of your article about that. And I love that thing. And that gets used all the time. Right. Um, but no, the the crown has mostly sat in the closet. It's been pulled out a few times. It's going to get pulled out as soon as my coworkers and I are safe to get together again. Because we're going to go do a gun shoot uh, for a project we're working yes. on. And that's Secret one of the, man. That's, that's honestly the reason I bought it was because right. I have... I've worked with so many recordings, not just from libraries, but also recordings that were commissioned by uh, by us for Call of Duty projects. So I've heard a lot of John Fasal sessions and Charles Main sessions that were recorded specifically for Call of Duty projects and Chuck Russum stuff. And that mic always sounds amazing. There were a handful of mics that always sounded amazing. That, the Neumann 191, there were a few of them. And so I bought that little list of mics that was that were just always really, really good. Um, I'll use it more. I promise. I just... <laughs> I don't use that one that much. If you have a vehicle to record ever, a PZM is just magic. Yeah, I've heard that. I need to I need to do that. And they're not expensive PZMs in general. I mean, 200 bucks or something, right, for most of them? Underrated for travel, too, because you can just take them with you in a little bag and just drop them like landmines. And yeah. you don't have to put, like, you know, wind protection and screens or anything else up. You can just have it all in the little bag and just drop it down. And you get this big hemispherical pattern. I, I'm a fan of PZMs. I love them. Yeah, it's funny. My my first rig was a Shep's MS rig, and it's still the single. If if my house was burning down, it would be the one thing I would try to grab. If I could only grab one thing, it's what I would grab because I could do ninety five percent of my work with that rig. And partly because I know it so well, I know exactly how to record with it. But it's also just that versatile for me. You know, I'm still a huge fan of MS. Some people aren't, but yeah, I, I Mark, I know so many people that bought Shep's MS rigs, which are not cheap. And I always felt bad because I'm like, oh, I hope you like it because I wrote that article <laughs> for Designing Sound so many years ago about MS and and that rig, but um, I feel strongly about it. But, you know, there are other options now to build an MS or cheaper, but at the time, there weren't a lot of options. Figure out microphones were really few and far between. They still are to some degree. You know, there aren't that many of them. But, um, yeah, I mean, you need one good general sound effects rig, whatever that turns out to be, and then just use it and learn it, you know, and then when you really have a reason to upgrade, then, you know, upgrade if you can, if you want to. But, you know, nowadays, I don't think you'd even need to. You could do your whole career... Um, you know, with a much, much cheaper rig than even that. I mean, gear inspires though. You know, it really does. But is it worth the cost? Well, it depends. <laughs> I mean, I agree it's inspiring, but it's really expensive. Oh, well, I'm not saying like a Shep's rig in particular, but whatever gear it is that actually gets you out and working, I think that there is real value there. Yeah, but what I guess I would argue that try not to fall into that trap of thinking that some expensive thing is going to entice you to get out and record. You should be out recording with a $100 recorder if that's all you can afford. For sure. And then hopefully you'd be smarter than me and realize <laughs> that, hey, I can actually record perfectly well with this recorder. I mean, Christina, you're starting out, so you're kind of, you know, all the rest of us here are all 
old hats at this. You know, we've spent all our money already. But I mean, <laughs> I, I do I do think it's changing the mentality a little bit. I do I think there are a lot more people kind of starting out in their careers and and like you're saying, you don't buy things impulsively like I did, and you don't feel this need to buy as many things. And I I think. Early on in my career, at least, I did feel the need to buy a lot of these things. And I do think if I was starting out now, I wouldn't feel that pressure, the pressure I made to myself. But, um, you know, I think it's great that, you know, you're being more selective about what you buy. Oh, I'm also a person that takes like half a year to make a decision on stuff. So <laughs> I'm that type of person. But I, I am also on the bandwagon of H1Ns as a person that takes walks every day. So like I bought that just because I saw a video of the behind the scenes of Blade Runner 2049 and they had just they were just using that and I thought wait everyone always told me that I need expensive gear to do like big movies so what is this so I bought one and then I just like that it works for a lot of things it's what I use with students if they're trying to test out stuff because I kind of don't want to get them like my all my more expensive gear they're especially high school kids no no thank you and yeah. it it sounds pretty good. I I like it, and I think the only, I've only had it a few times. If I post my gear like on Twitter, there's like a few people that'll go, "Ugh, I would never use a Zoom H6 on my project." Right? I'm like, well, I'm in the indie world, so yeah. There's lots of that. Who nobody knows what I use. They're telling on themselves <laughs> when they say that, though. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> Years ago, I did a film called John Carter, and I needed to record baby bears. Or I wanted to record baby bears, which are really hard to find. And I found this woman in Tennessee who ran a black bear rescue organization. And I, I said, hey, could I, if I flew out there, could I record these bears? And she said, well, you know, we tried not to let them have much human contact and blah, blah, blah. You know, I could give you like 20 minutes. And I thought, well, I'm not going to fly halfway across the country for 20 minutes. And I said, but what if I sent you a recorder? Um, would you be willing to try to record this? So I sent her a Zoom H1, not even an H1N. This was years and years ago. Um, and she got so excited and she knew nothing about the technology, but you know it's such a simple recorder. You push record. I set the uh, level at fifty percent. I just kind of preset up. So all you gotta do is turn it on, press record, and let's see what you get. Um, and she sent me back six hours of baby bear recordings, which have proved wow. still. So you know, they were all over Dark Crystal. We used them in Solo, um, and they were fantastic. And you know, again, she knew nothing about gear. She just knew to point it at the thing that she wanted to record and record. And you know, yeah, there was a lot of mic handling and a lot of things I had to deal with. But, um, you know, some of my favorite sounds in my library were recorded on a $99 recorder. And, you know, I, Dave Farmer and I were recording on Minidisc back on Lord of the Rings and $100 plug-in microphones from a company called Sound Professionals. It was making these little sort of portable like, clip them to our shoulders and walk around and record. And, you know, um, so you know, we were using compressed stuff, which we then converted back into Wave. And, you know, it's all over Lord of the Rings. And nobody cares, you know, if it's the right sound and it makes it through the process. Um you know, that was always inspiring to me too early on was, you know, to own a wide range of things. It wasn't just the expensive stuff that I wanted to own. I mean, I wanted to own cheap stuff too. I just wanted to own too much stuff. That's the problem. Well, the problem arises because as a general rule, people who work in sound are people who would be recording regardless if it was their paycheck or not. So in addition to buying stuff that we use at work, it's also our hobby in many people's cases. So you, you can somehow in your mind start accounting for stuff to purchase that, well, this isn't for work. This is more of a fun microphone, you know, and, uh, and then it slowly ties back into work. But there is that weird Venn diagram of work versus hobby that might not be the case in other professions. Mark, do you find that you kind of make that account in your head that you can afford something because it's also a hobby? I've gotten much better about it in the last 
you know, three or four years, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's almost dangerous. You know, I, I kind of wish I could have a, at least when it comes to purchasing, I wish I could have a very detached business attitude towards this stuff and say, I'm only going to purchase things that, you know, fiscally make sense and that are totally responsible. And, um, you know, getting, growing up and having kids kind of changes that perspective a bit. It forces you to change your mind about that, which is a big part of why I'm more cautious now, but um, yeah, it's something to be mindful of. And I, and I think about that a lot when I purchase things, it's, do I want to buy this? Cause I think it'll be fun. Do I want to buy this? Cause I'll actually need it. Do I really need it? Do I have something else that'll solve this problem for me? Do you have like a gear account, Mark, or do you just like buy stuff out of the house account? What do you mean? Uh, you talking about at work? No, I'm talking about money. Like to differentiate. Oh no, I don't have a gear account. I keep it. I just buy it out of personal checking account, but I keep it I'm very cautious about purchases and, you know, one of the smartest things I do now um, is I discuss it with my wife and she's very reasonable and she understands it (laughs) enough. She used to play in a band years ago, so she gets a bit of recording and so she'll usually ask me questions like, what will this do for you that you haven't done already? Like she'll ask me the questions I should be asking myself if I've forgotten to. And it's really helpful. (laughs) My wife is the opposite. She goes, you work hard. If you want to buy just buy it. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> she's an enabler. Yeah. Well, no, she's, no. you know, she's like, you, you work hard. You, you can afford it. Just buy what you want. I once bought a yeah. microphone because I liked the color and it was a very expensive microphone. It was a chef's shotgun and they came out in this blue and I was like, well, that's a gorgeous microphone. Yeah. I bought it purely for the, the aesthetics, cement. the cement, the cement. Yeah. I was like, I just want that because it looks neat. And it's probably literally never been used in the 15 years that I've owned that microphone. Yeah. And see, she's familiar with some of my gear and she'll even ask me about Sheps specifically. She'll say, I know you use your Sheps all the time. Are you going to use this as much as that? No. Okay. Then why do you really need it? I want it. The the reason I asked that though, Mark, is because it, you know, I, this is something that I do, right? I definitely take a percentage of my paycheck every, every month, not a percentage, but a certain dollar amount Yeah. every, every twice a month and scoop it into a literal different bank account. That's got its own debit card to it. And that is my reinvesting in myself money. But but then do you feel responsible to spend that money? Like if you accumulate, all of a sudden you look at like, oh my God, there's $5,000 in here. I better buy something just because you have that money set aside to, or or would you go? It's never built up that high. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> there's no way he's back on to $5,000. No way. <laughs> no, but what happens is I, I end up with a, with a, I end up with a reserve there, right? But it's also a guilt-free reserve. It is, I have this need. I'm going to go get this thing so that I can go do this thing that I need to go do. And so it does keep me from like the vanity purchases, right? Which is, you know, which come out of like the house account, which, you know, which can come with regret sometimes. Right. Mm. And, it, it, but it also, it also keeps me from the other problem, which I have, which is being too much of a tightwad in spots. Right. And, tr- and trying to cut corners. So it keeps me from cutting corners by trying to buy the cheaper thing instead of buying the thing that I, that I actually need to do the thing that, that I'm trying to do. And it's just like a guilt-free, systematic, here's my reinvestment in myself bank account that's sitting way over here. And, and it allows me to do things like, like buy unsexy things like, like power supplies and, and hard drive space, et cetera, right? And so that's why it never builds way up, but it just allows me to continually reinvest myself systematically in a way that, that can still be fluid you know, from month to month. Dave Farmer and I have a, a running joke, which is that any anything that costs under hundred dollars doesn't actually count towards anything keeping track. So I think it's a fact, though. That's just uh, that's just understood. So like he'll just email us and plug in and go. It was only sixty nine dollars. Doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> nice. Fine. I, so I'm not as regimented as you are. I do kind of do that. Um, we, my wife and I, actually both have a basically a discretionary fund in our budget app. We use you need a budget, which is awesome because it's on our phones and we can track stuff. So we each get a certain amount of dollars we allocate to ourselves to spend on whatever, and out of that comes 
whatever she wants to buy, it comes, you know, out of that comes video games I want to buy or movies I want to buy if I want a Blu-ray of a movie because I'm a big nerd about it um, or plugins and microphones. And I don't know, I feel like I'm more likely to spend it if I have the money set aside. And I, I struggle to even rattle off a list of things I want at this point. I'm kind of at a point where I'm pretty good with microphones. If anything, I probably need to get rid of a few of them. I probably need to get rid of a few plugins. So I'm worried that if I set aside money for that, I'd probably start spending it. That said, I do set aside money for things like purchasing courses that I think are going to be interesting um, or, you know, educational materials. Like I bought Tim's sound minor video set, which I'm ashamed to admit I've been so busy. I still haven't finished watching that, but I will get there soon. I, I've watched part of it. It's been really helpful. Um, <laughs> it's awesome actually. Um, but I, yeah, I'm worried I'd spend it if I set aside money explicitly for audio stuff. Well, that's the key, right? Is it to, to, to think about any purchase we make is like, is this going to better my work or, you know, actually yes. have some tangible improvement in it or better my own ability? You know, like I do think spending money on learning is never a bad investment in yourself. Yeah. Much more a better investment than spending it on gear that you may never use. Yep. And looking at my six plugin purchases this year, I can only say that for sure about one of them. I bought Acon Extract Dialogue because I was working on a short film earlier this year. I had a really, really bad problem with a line of dialogue. I sent a clip of it to a friend and he said, hey, go get this plugin. I hate to tell you to buy a plugin, but this will actually solve your problem. Um, and it did. But yeah, you've got to think about what problems it's solving. Otherwise, it's easy to get on this treadmill of just spending too much money on stuff you don't need. Christina, how do you approach it? I started off when I was like a camera person. I had a shared bank account card with my dad and he would see every single thing I would buy for film. And that just gave me that guilt, I guess, over the years. <laughs> so, and we still have that. The watchful eye. Like, if I go, hey, I'm going to buy a computer. And he's like, I'm going to see it. Like, I know. And that's okay. I don't care. I'm 31. Don't care. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm an adult now, dad. Gosh. But uh, that that also helps me because I, I used to be really terrible when I first started. I bought so many plugins and never, I took, most of them I still haven't touched. I'm like, I don't even know why I bought it. Maybe somebody told me or I saw it in an article or thought, wow, that looks really cool. I want to buy it and then never used it. But I work more on the indie side of stuff, like no budget to low budget. So I think that's why my mentality of it coming in is like, do I need it or do I not? Because Whatever I get from that, the project is going to go into my little fund of what I need or want. Like someday I will pay off Cedar, maybe. But, you know, um, that that's how I approach it is just um, whatever I have with that. Plus, when I moved into sound design uh, fully as like a full full time job, I lost my job. So it was just like, a, oh, no, what do I do? I don't have an income. I don't have health care. Well, I need to do something. So I, I just scrounge money and I get really, really afraid to spend money anymore. Yeah, that's heavy. So like when you're triaging between, you know, life and, and career, like what, what tilts the scales? Um, hmm. I guess what is needed if I know that like maybe I'll pass on a project that I know that I cannot actually fix like their dialogue kind of. So it's always dialogue that needs to be fixed. And I'm like, I'm sorry, your your laws are scratchy. I can't, I don't, I don't know how to fix that. Um, 
but I kind of just take it one project at a time. And that's, I, I enjoy that and I learn as much as I can from it. And, um, yeah, I think it's just, if, if there's a need or if I ask like people in the industry, like, Hey, here is a sound clip. I don't know how to do anything with it. And they'll tell me it's this and it's this amount. And I'll go, okay, maybe by the end of the year, I will buy a certain amount or if there's sales, especially sales, those are my favorite times. And that's when I will buy it. Nice. I think something that both you, Christina, and Mark just mentioned was uh, kind of having someone that you trust that maybe has a little bit more experience or experience in a different area that you can pass something on to and say, what would you do in this situation? Finding those, I don't know if mentor is necessarily the right word or a peer group, that that can be really helpful. And also what I've found is I have a, an MKH-30, a figure eight microphone, but I don't have a 50 or a 60. So I have friends that do though. So we can, they borrow mine and I borrow theirs when I need to get the uh, MS system set up. So the, finding that peer group uh, is also v something that can cut down on your gear acquisition is finding ways to pool resources with people. And another thing I just wanted to mention quickly about plugins in January this year, my computer that had worked wonderfully for a long period of time just crapped out and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. And I ended up just trashing everything and slowly installing things one at a time. And I got to a point where everything was working and I had a f very long list of plugins that were not installed yet. And I was just like, well, I'm not going to install those until I need them. And almost all of them I've still not installed. And that was in January. Like there's a core group of plugins that I use regularly and uh, the rest of them I've not even thought about since I didn't install them on that rebuild. I wish it was easier to sell plugins because it's like microphone. It's like, okay, there's plenty of places to sell that. And you can transfer iLock assets to some degree and different things, but some companies don't allow you to and different things. Because I mean, I have thousands of dollars of plugins and it's not even for me about the money. I want to sell a lot of my stuff just because somebody else might actually be able to use this. Uh, I finally sold my old uh, sound device 7, 722, not because, I mean, I loved that recorder. I mean, that thing took me through a large part of my career and it was nostalgic. And I, re the only reason I kept it for many years was purely nostalgia. But it pained me to think that that recorder was sitting on a shelf not getting used. You know, it's like a, a, a racehorse. It wants to run. You know, it wants, somebody wants, and, and I, so I sold it really at a very reasonable price to somebody who's starting out who wanted a, a good recorder. And I just felt much better about that fact that it was being used and wasn't just sitting in my closet anymore. But plugins are this that way. I wish I knew what to do with all these plugins that I don't really want or care about anymore. I wish it was easier to sell them. Did, did it affect your workflow, Tim? I mean, as far as, is it is it more streamlined now without having to wade through all the plugins? Well, yeah, actually getting a plugin out of, you know, the, the menu is easier. But the, the, yeah, the truth is I just wasn't using all these plugins. And, and a lot of the plugins that I've purchased, I've purchased stupidly because I purchased because of the price, not because of a need. So, uh, like, you get an email. We all nodded our heads. There was yeah, five yeah, heads yeah. going up uh, and down. Everybody's <laughs> nodding. You get an email from Isotope or whatever that, you know, blankety blank reverb is on sale for, you know, $29.99. But, and then it's 80% off. You see that. How, how can I lose, you know? And then you spend that $29.99. And as you guys were saying, if it's under 100 bucks, you know, you don't necessarily, it's not something you are, uh, lamenting 20 years from now but it is just something that i, I end up not using because you're also when those emails come in you're in the middle of a big tight deadline and you're like i'll get to that when i'm done this deadline i'll take the time to go relearn it and then two weeks later when you've delivered your session you've forgotten about it and you're just moving on to the next thing and that that's one of the things i find really hard is 
finding the time when I do buy something to dedicate to learn that thing that I've just bought. Yes. It's the same thing with plugins as it is with microphones. You have to sit and bang on it for uh, for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to really figure out what the heck is even going on there so much. And sometimes you find some plugins that you just love. Like there's a native instruments delay. Um, I forget what it's even replica. called, but I just replica. It's freaking amazing. Mark knows what I'm talking about. It's so easy to make anything sound good. And I'm a delay guy. I'm not a reverb guy. And it's just like, I love it. I love that thing. And it's so easy. And it's just like, I don't need another delay in my life anywhere at all. You know, it's just the best. And sometimes you run into that, right? And then you find the one thing and it's like, you know exactly how that thing works and what it's going to do when you just don't need another one, you know, but you don't get to that point unless you sit with an individual plugin and bang it forever and, and really figure out what the heck it's even doing. Yeah, Tim, I did the same thing. Like every, every but, but once a year, or maybe once every year and a half, I kind of wipe my computer just preemptively and kind of rebuild it. And every time I go through my set of plugins and all my installers, and I have keep a list of all the ones that I own, and I go, do, do I want to install that this time? Because the truth is, when you install 500, 600 plugins, you know, it's it's probably the cause of the instability in the first place. It's causing you to rebuild your computer, to be honest, you know, mm -hmm. and some of those plugins don't get updated. I mean, it's impossible to keep track of updates of all these plugins as well. So um, I try and then, you know, eventually I slowly install them as I want them or need them. And, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm the same way. I have, I'm sure 35 to 40% of the plugins that I've bought haven't been used in five years, probably never get used again. The assets just sitting there and it's being completely wasted at this point, you know? You know, Mark, you were talking about how you're worried that if you start allocating money specifically to to reinvestment, right? Um, even if you exclude, say, say you exclude education from it, like I'm just going to take, you know, 150 bucks a month and move it over to this account. And I'm just going to use that to buy stuff for sound, <laughs> right? right? And your concern is that I'm just going to spend it and, and it's just going to evaporate. What I have found in practice for me anyway, is that the impulse purchases disappear. And the reason they disappear is because I'm constantly saving for the bigger thing, right? I'm like, I want that freaking M930 microphone. That's the one I want in my life. And this $30 plug-in is gonna keep me from that. And so I just end up like not going down the road of the impulse purchases because I end up with certain targets that, that I'm always got my eBay searches going. You know what I mean? And I know how far away I am from, I'm like a seven year old with his allowance. <laughs> you know, I, it's just like, I get that. I'm going to save up and buy that Nintendo, man. It's going to happen. No, I totally get that. I think the difference between you and I, or the two different, the two key differences I think I have in my situation are a, I, I can be really, really impulsive. And I have been for a very, very long time. Kind of like what Tim was describing and B I, I mean, I'm very fortunate to be able to say this. I don't have any big purchases I want to make. Um, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Like, I can't even think of a microphone I want to buy right now. I'm really, really fortunate to we'll, not. We'll, we'll talk privately afterwards. I've got a list yeah, for you. Please don't. <laughs> please don't. And that doesn't mean I won't come upon something in the future, obviously. Or maybe somebody will come along with something that will blow my mind as much as, you know, something I've already purchased. But as it stands, I've got nothing big that I want. Um and nothing, for the most part, aside from the occasional impulsive purchase, I've got nothing that's more interesting to me than my retirement account, frankly. Um, I mean, that's what it comes down to, is that's more interesting to me at this point. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody, today. This was a really interesting talk. It's nice to hear everybody's different kind of philosophies on how they go about acquiring, and in Tim's case, unacquiring equipment these days. Um, so thanks for joining us, everybody. It was great to have you. Thanks for having us. It was great. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Before we leave this episode, I want to send a super huge and humble thanks to Michael O'Connor, who volunteered to edit and mix this episode. Michael is a very active member of the Field Recording Slack, and I've learned a lot from him over the last few years. So it was really an honor when he reached out to help out the podcast on this episode. If you're unfamiliar with Michael, he is a film and television sound designer, as well as the owner of Audio Shade Libraries, which you can check out at audioshade.com. I personally have the quadcopter library and I've used it a lot. It's awesome. It's great stuff. Okay, that's all for now. My name is Tim Muirhead. And on behalf of Renee Coronado and our guests in this episode, Christina Morse, Tim Nielsen, and Mark Kilborn, thanks for listening. And keep your ears peeled for future episodes of Tone Benders. Tone Benders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. 